Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. I'm here with uh, Babylon. Babylon is basically a proxy chain between Bitcoin and Cosmos chains, and it allows you to do checkpointing, and that effectively gives you um, reduced unbonding periods. We'll go into that later with our guest speaker today. So I'm here with the founder, David C., and let's go right ahead and give you all the alpha that you need. David, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me, Tango. Yeah. I've seen so many of your great shows, so I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for coming on right now and sharing the Alpha on Babylon. Sounds like it's been a long time coming based on your research. Where did you get started in the crypto space? I know that you were researching exploits on Ethereum um, before you even came up with this. So like, what's the genesis of Babylon and, and what's your start in crypto? Yeah, so we started doing research in crypto about uh, four years ago. We were really fascinated by the Nakamoto's white paper, and we wanted to do more research on understanding how to design faster and better and more secure consensus protocols. So I decided to build a research group at Stanford. So I'm a professor at Stanford. And so we have a group of about six to seven students now doing research in blockchain. We are basically the only research group at Stanford doing full-time blockchain research, and uh, we find it really fun. So in addition to doing basic research, we also do collaboration with industry. So for example, as you mentioned, we have a collaboration with uh, Ethereum Foundation. So a lot of our research focuses on trying to understand some of the security of proof-of-stake protocols because you know proof-of-stake is the relatively new compared to proof-of-work. So a lot of research we do is trying to understand how to design these protocols securely. But then, so that's when the Proof-of-Stake Ethereum protocol came up in a paper about two years ago. It's called GasPub. And our group found some attack factors that is uh, problematic for GasPub. And so we're quite concerned because, you know, the merge was coming up. And so we reached out to Vitalik and his team. And so we started collaborating with them to try to fix some of these problems, improve the security protocol, and it's still an ongoing direction. While we're doing all this, we figure out a sort of a pretty deep understanding of proof of stake protocol. We also understand that, you know, although proof of work is said, uh, there's a general shift to proof of stake, but, you know, a chain like Bitcoin is not going away anytime soon. And so our thought is that, hey, proof of work actually has some fundamental advantages over proof of stake although it consumes a lot of energy. So is there a way to sort of reuse some of the energy that one spent on Bitcoin already and try to use that security to benefit all the new proof-of-stake chains that are coming up or has already been launched? And uh, so that was the genesis of uh, Babylon. Uh, we did the research uh, late last year uh, and beginning of this year, and then uh, we built a team, and now we have about uh, 11 people working on the project. That's great. So... I watched your talk 
at Cosmoverse, and you basically reiterated everything that you spoke about there um, just now. And I also watched your podcast with CryptoCito. I think that both those two artifacts sufficiently provide the listener a high-level understanding about what Babylon is. But I think what both lacked was breaking down the fundamentals and going back to, I guess, first principles. So in proof of stake, there's um, Tendermint, which is a BFT consensus protocol. And then the second primary paradigm as an alternative is the Ethereum-like proof of stake protocol, which is hybrid BFT and uh, Nakamoto consensus. We should go into that. You know, first of all, what was lacking in the hybrid Casper FFG protocol that Ethereum currently employs? And how did you see checkpointing uh, into Bitcoin as a way to get them out of such pitfalls? Yeah, so a consensus protocol has many dimensions. So let's try to break it down a little bit more. Your question is multiply loaded. So let me try to break it down a little bit more. So first of all, what's the difference between Ethereum protocol and Tenement? Is that a good starting point? So one is a BFT protocol, pure BFT protocol. Tenement is an evolution of earlier BFT protocol like PBFT. Very pretty classical, but uh, made more efficient. So that's Tenement. Now, Ethereum went another route. Ethereum decided to design their own protocol from scratch. And the reason, I think one of the reasons was because Ethereum started with proof of work. And so they want to retain certain advantages of proof of work in their proof of stake protocol. And one advantage they were quite interested in is this notion called dynamic availability, which means that no matter how, so in a proof of work chain, the amount of mining power can go up and down, depending on, say, market conditions. Some mining companies may go bankrupt. They may not want to mine anymore. It's not probable to mine anymore. But, you know, Bitcoin has been running for 14 years, still keep on going, no matter how many miners there are, up and down. A lot of fluctuation up and down. This is not the case in a protocol like Tenement. Because in Tenement, if you fall below, say, two-third validators, gives a lot of values went offline for some reason, then the chain just stops growing, stops completely. So Ethereum doesn't really want that. So they want to have a part which is dynamically available. On the other hand, they also want some advantages of a protocol like Tenement, for example, to give to allow them to slash validators which are double signed, which are double signing. So what we found out in our research with the Ethereum protocol is actually it's fundamentally impossible to try to provide both benefits at the same time. So in some sense, the hybrid protocol was kind of like a sort of a, uh, what do you call it, mind-twisting way of trying to deal with this dilemma that they have. And because they don't, there was no fundamental understanding, the protocol was designed in a way that leaves some attack vectors. And so that's what we did. We sort of disambiguate the problem into this dilemma and then we're trying to figure a way to sort of formulate the problem such that you can have the best of both worlds. That is, you can have dynamically growing ledger, but at the same time, you can have sort of a, a part of the ledger which you can do slashing on. And that's what we designed for them using this. Okay. So that is the distinction between tenement 
and Ethereum. Okay, but there's only one aspect of the story. Now, the Bitcoin comes into the story in a somewhat different way. So what we figure out is that Bitcoin has other advantages beyond just this dynamic availability. In particular, Bitcoin has advantage that as the chain, as you wait longer and longer, transactions security becomes higher and higher. So for example, if you wait one day and you confirm a transaction, you get a certain level of security in terms of how costly it is for the miner to attack that transaction. If you wait 10 days, you get like 10 times the security. If you wait 100 days, you get 100 times the security. You do not get that in any proof of stake protocol. In any proof of stake protocol, you do say fast finalization. So after five seconds, you finalize the block. But then even if you wait another five hours, you don't get more security. The only security you get is the security offered by the stakers supporting the chain. That's it. So this is sort of one fundamental advantage of Bitcoin, which is this ability of getting more and more security as you wait longer and longer. And in some sense, the, our use of Bitcoin is trying to sort of integrate this advantage with the existing advantage of proof of stake protocol. So that's how I sort of disambiguate sort of the Ethereum project with this uh, Bitcoin project. It's sort of using Bitcoin in sort of different ways, the advantage of Bitcoin in different ways. Does that clear? Should I... Uh... Yes, it's clear. And here I'm sharing my screen about the primary attack that's in question that longest chain proof of stake is more vulnerable to than uh, BFT proof of stake. So the long range attack is a pitfall of proof of stake that applies to both BFT proof of stake and longest chain proof of stake like in Ethereum. Correct. And so this is the core attack vector that Babylon is solving. So I actually wrote this article in 2017, and it's so funny. I was rereading this and then saw that I actually added this piece into the possible solutions for long-range attacks. So Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny how um, Babylon... You wrote yeah. this. Yes, this is... Oh, cool. Yeah. So in 2017... A lot of people didn't understand the differences between how Tendermint does proof of stake as modeled after BFT or PBFT versus how Ethereum was proposing how they were going to going to model Casper. The consensus comparison was meant to disambiguate the two different models. And so the long range attack, and this is what you and Zaki had touched on in the CryptoCeta episode, is particularly privy to weak subjectivity. And it's this notion that, so, you know, if you're a blockchain and you're building blocks in the proof of work model, the blockchain progresses based on like hard facts, hard objectivity, right? Is the hash power of, you know, this block found by this miner greater than like a block found by another miner? And so in proof of stake, we don't necessarily have that. It's more like, well, how many validators agree that you saw, you know, this chain go this way or that? And when you have a Casper longest chain model where it's different from like Tenement BFT where like it doesn't fork, so there's just only one canonical chain, you re really can't tell which fork is the right fork. So if validators collude, then you have a you have a problem. And so a solution to this actually is, oh, like what what happens if you 
optionally store the validator set on a proof of work chain uh, or, you know, leverage the security model of something with objective. Correct. Correct. Yeah. If you, if you guys haven't read this already, it's actually still surprisingly evergreen and it applies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I recommend giving this a read if you need a primer. So, David, another piece of fundamental information, if you will, is checkpointing. What is that? We need to define that. Okay. So long-range attack is really interesting because in some sense, it sort of reflects the heart of proof-of-stake protocol. And if you think about it, in this, you can think of there are three types of consensus protocols. On the one extreme, there's proof-of-work. On the other extreme, there is so-called permission protocol, where there's a fixed number of validators. That's very classical. Never changes. The fixed set is start from genesis, never changes. Proof-of-stake is somewhere in the middle. It is not proof-of-work. But it's not permission because the stake, the value set changes over time. You know, some people sell stakes, some people buy stakes, etc. Right? So in some sense, proof of stake has this interesting characteristic. Now, long-range attack precisely comes because of this distinction between proof of stake with permission and proof of work. So in proof of work, when you try to fork the system, you need to do work. You need to do work. So work Building a block is never for free. In proof of stake, when you create a block, you don't have to do extra work. You have to only use your signatures to use your keys to sign the signature. So there's an issue in proof of stake, which is called nothing at stake, which is that you can use a signature multiple times and you can create multiple blocks. Okay. And precisely long-range attack comes exactly like this. You build a chain, a canonical chain first, and then, because it's proof of stake, you exit the system. Your keys, however, are still valid for building a parallel fork without any extra cost. And so you build the extra fork, and that gives you a chance to double spend the system. And your, your stake is already unbonded at that point. So it's kind of a very tricky attack vector, which is very central to the characteristic of proof of stake. Now, if you think about it, if I am a client that is always on the system, then I would not get fooled because I can see that the chain that's growing earlier is the correct one. And I'll just reject the later one. So remember that tag, right? You first grow a chain and then after you're unborn, you build another chain. But there's a causality there. And if you are always online, then you always know which is the correct chain to follow. You'll never get fooled. The problem is that clients are not always online. They, you know, they go online and then they leave, they come online again. The problem is the guy who come online again after all this attack happened did not know which one was actually the earlier one and which one was the later one. So the core idea of checkpointing is to basically say that, hey, we can use Bitcoin as the guy who is always on. And he will be observing for me which is the earlier POS chain and which one is the later attack chain. So the key is how do you let Bitcoin record that observation? And the record is by having a, a relayer to send the validator set, as you mentioned in your in your insightful post, of sending the signatures of the validator set, submit it as a transaction in Bitcoin and put it into the Bitcoin network by sending it to the Bitcoin miners, the mempool. So from the point of Bitcoin miner, it's just like any transaction. It doesn't really know what's going on here, but it does know that there's a transaction and there's a transaction fee being paid. 
So let me submit this transaction into the Bitcoin chain. But once it's recorded in the chain, then the proof of stake clients can now interpret that as a timestamp. And because proof of work chain, if you wait long enough, it becomes very secure. That timestamp cannot be reverted and removed from the Bitcoin network. So the follow-up question to that would be, how does the economics of this work out? Because if you're periodically checkpointing into Bitcoin, it's you're going to incur fees for doing so. So yeah. you know, who's paying these fees? How are the users of Babylon subsidized or not for these fees? Yeah, that's right. So we have to pay Bitcoin transaction fees to get these checkpoints in to the Bitcoin network. So there are two things going on. One is that first, we need to be efficient. We don't want to, for example, put all the 100 signatures of a Cosmos chain validator into Bitcoin because that will cost us thousands of transactions in Bitcoin and that will cost us a whole lot of transaction fees. So first, we have to be efficient. Also, we don't want our validator set to change very often. Otherwise, we have to keep on updating the validator set and that will cost a lot of transaction fees. So we've done a lot of optimization to first minimize this cost. Okay, that's number one. However, even after we minimize the cost, there is still a cost, okay? So the second way we reduce the cost is we say, okay, instead of having each individual Cosmos chain do this checkpointing, we will build one chain, the Babylon chain, to do this checkpointing on behalf of everybody in the community. So for example, if there's 100 Cosmos chain want to use the service, then one, it doesn't have to that 100 chain, each one of them checkpoint individually into Bitcoin. So now we have a 100x saving in the transaction fee. So we figure out how to do that through using IBC to connect our chain, Babylon chain, to each of the 100 chain. So, okay, so now you save all the costs. So now what is the economics? Well, the economics is that the Babylon chain, the relayers of Babylon network have to pay Bitcoin transaction fees to get this checkpoint in, but the chains which use this service through Babylon will be having an IBC, and the IBC, what we figure out, is effectively a way for these chains to timestamp onto Babylon. And so there will be a transaction fee associated with that IBC communication, and that will be the payment to get this benefit. So that will be the rough economics. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to tell you about Interchain FM Steak. Interchain FM is not only a podcast, but also a steakhouse. IFM Steak is a premium, sushi-grade steakhouse running on Osmosis, Umi, and Comdex. If you get your alpha from this podcast, show us some love by delegating to Interchain FM Steak. So let's make it concrete and go through the user flow. If I'm Osmosis Chain, leveraging Babylon chain to checkpoint into Bitcoin to reduce my user's unbonding period for staking. Yeah. So if I make an IBC transaction, do I pay in Osmo? And then are you using an Oracle to convert the Bitcoin Osmo price? Let's detail that out more. Like what are people paying in? Yeah. So maybe we can think about so if there's an IBC connection between any two chains right now, so some payment has been made to have a IBC packet, IBC message from one chain to another chain. 
So in what denomination is that payment made? Maybe we can answer that question. Because in some sense, it's not that different here. So is there flexibility as to what denomination right now in terms of the payment of the gas fee on the receiving chain? Or does it have to be the receiving chain's token? Actually, I'm not completely sure about this uh, question I'm actually asking. Okay, so right now, general IBC UX is if you are withdrawing out of a chain, you are paying that chain's native token. So if I'm withdrawing out of Osmo, I'm paying some like minimal amount of Osmo fee, uh, and then you receive a transaction on the destination chain, so like Babylon. Once it's on Babylon, then you're paying a fee uh, in the Babylon native token. And then I assume when Babylon checkpoints into Bitcoin, you're going to have to do some kind of conversion natively on Babylon and pay the Bitcoin fee for making that those transactions. Yeah. So there would be a payment in the Babylon token. So that would be a, a model. Now, I must say we have not worked out the full tokenomics associated with this. So in fact... Um, I just had a chat this morning with the Interchain Builders Program, and we will have a lot of discussions in the next month or so to sort of iron this part out. Right now, we're building a test net. So in this test net, there will be no economics in the beginning of the test net. Yeah, I imagine if the you know Babylon validators are offering this value-added service that you would charge slightly more over the cost of um, checkpointing in a Bitcoin like on top of it for offering the service or have some kind of native token, right? At, at, le- at least for staking. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we talked about the unbonding period. How much time in days does Babylon potentially reduce Tendermint-based chains unbonding periods to safely? So safely is a key word. Yeah. You can always reduce unbonding period to one second uh, if you don't want to safely. So right now, the unbonding period for Cosmos chains varies, but typically the range is from 14 days to 28 days, as far as we know, the chains that we've talked to. And this unbonding period is basically made long to essentially allow the safe unbonding for clients who revisit the system within 21 days. So for example, if it's 21 days unbonding period, then an IBC connection that has not communicated and has communicated for less than 21 days can safely continue to be used. But if it's beyond the unbonding period, then they have to be shut down. So this long unbonding period has a lot of implication to, for example, IBC. Now, what we are proposing is to, instead of using this unbonding period, which is very long because of weak subjectivity, we used Bitcoin timestamp, right? So now the length of our unbonding period will be dependent on how deep you want this timestamp to be in the Bitcoin chain before you become happy. So imagine you are a validator and you want to unbond from, say, osmosis. What do you do? You submit, submit an unbonding request to the osmosis chain. That request we'll get timestamp, when Osmosis uses Babylon, we'll get timestamp onto Bitcoin. So now you get a timestamp. Hey, but that timestamp in the beginning is just at the tip of the Bitcoin chain. It's not very stable. It can be reverted. So I don't want to allow immediate unbonding at this point. 
So now I wait. Okay, I, I check. Oh, my timestamp is now 10 block deep, 100 block deep. And depending on what your measure of security is from osmosis, if you think, oh, 100 block deep is pretty much, I have never seen a Bitcoin reversal of 100 block deep. Then, okay, at that point, I say, you know, the timestamp cannot be reverted. And that means that there cannot be any more, any long-range attack at this point. So now I can allow the sticker to the validator to unbond. So in the in this case, 100 block deep is about one day. So what I'm trying to say is that this unbonding period is variable and it can depend on the your level of, you know, security of Bitcoin. And that turn, that returns back to my original point, which was one of the interesting characteristics of Bitcoin is that the longer you wait, the more secure you are. And so this allows different chains. So Osmosis may think two days is better, 200 block deep is better. Another chain may think 100 block deep is good enough. So this does not have to be a specific number. So reiterating and maybe framing what you said earlier in a different light, um, the security model for Bitcoin with proof of work is that the cost to attack the chain is done up front. And in proof of stake, the cost to attack the chain is retroactive. You know, if you attack the chain, then we're going to slash you for bad behavior. You know, that being said, with Babylon checkpointing, one could say that, you know, the six block confirmation time is sufficiently safe. And therefore, am I correct to say that instead of the 14 day and bonding period for Cosmos Hub, for example, it is effectively reduced to the time it takes Bitcoin to mine six blocks after the time of checkpoint. Yeah, six block deep is a number that people have in mind for Bitcoin, but there's no actually specific religious meaning to the six block deep. Six block deep, I don't know how that actually six block deep came up because it was never in the original Nakamoto's paper. Uh, this number six block deep, I don't know how it came up. I do not recommend six block deep to do this unbonding request confirmation because the unbonding request is such an important transaction. A six block deep is like uh, the security level is not enough. And six block deep, if you think about it, it's also a very short time, it's one hour. So there's still a lot of range between one hour and 14 days. So we would recommend somewhere near half a day to one day. I think that would be very secure on the Bitcoin chain. So I, I was understanding it incorrectly then in thinking that the standard six block deep uh, wait period for you to be sufficiently confident that you've received the money that someone sent you um, is there is not applicable for Cosmos chains or like proof of stake chains because there should be a higher security guarantee for like unbonding, yeah, right? Yeah. Because of the long range attack, right? But in doing so, Correct. Cosmos chains do inherit the 51% threshold instead of the one third threshold security model. At this moment, if you are a Cosmos chain, like Osmosis, using Bitcoin security through Babylon, you now have two levels of security. Two levels of security. First, you have your native security, which is supported by your own validator set on Osmosis. That validator set is responsible for 
doing fast confirmation. So in other words, all the transactions that are confirmed fast, they receive the security backed by the so the market cap to the to the speak of osmosis. Now, however, there is another type of transactions that would be confirmed only when you get a double confirmation. That is, you're confirmed both on the proof or the osmosis chain by the validators, as well as becoming, say, a hundred block deep on Bitcoin or 10 block deep on Bitcoin or 20 block deep. So those now receive both the economic security of Bitcoin plus the economic security of osmosis. So you can think of it at a high level, that's the kind of service that Babylon is trying to provide, is to say that, you know, in any chain, there are transactions which require a lot of security, and there are transactions that require lower level of security. And those low level of security, we can confirm very fast, but the high level of security requires a longer confirmation. So using Bitcoin security allows you to have this extra degree of freedom, extra dimension, in design your system. And the use case that we have been talking about, this unbonding time, is kind of one instantiation of this high-level, broader concept. That is, the unbonding request is not like any other transaction. It is a transaction. It is on the ledger, but it's not any other transaction. It's a very important transaction. And so we give it an extra level of security, Bitcoin level of security. And we don't mind waiting longer because, you know, Waiting one day is still much faster than waiting 21 days or 14 days. We did cover the fact that unbonding transactions are going to be checkpointed into Bitcoin. Is there anything else related to the state of the consumer blockchains and Cosmos that are going to be hashed and then merkelized and then submitted a proof for on Bitcoin? Or is it only unbonding data? Oh, actually, all the blocks of us of uh, the, the chain are checkpoint to Bitcoin. Which ones you want to use, you can interpret yourself. So that everything is checkpoint on the Bitcoin. Everything. So then that makes Babylon chain a data availability layer for all of its consumer chains, wouldn't it? No, no. So when, when we, so checkpointing by definition is sending the hash of the block into Bitcoin. So it is not a data availability service because we don't store the entire osmosis data or whatever chain that uses Babylon on Babylon. So it's the checkpoint, is the hash. Okay, so when osmosis sends a packet of data, IBC data message to Babylon, its chain state is already hashed. Yes. Okay. If we want to go a little bit deeper. Exactly what happens is that, so in an IBC communication, the receiving chain always maintain a light client of the sender chain because the receiving chain has to verify that whatever the stuff that was sent from osmosis to say Babylon, Babylon has to verify, hey, is this stuff like authorized by your validator set? So I need to check that, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, what we discover is that maintaining this light client itself is already enough to do the checkpointing of osmosis. So in other words, there's no extra information osmosis need to send to us. So all we need is once in a while, a sort of a ping message, a ping message from osmosis. So as to allow the light client to be updated, the light client headers to be updated on Babylon. So actually there's no extra information sent. Got it. 
So the service that Babylon provides is effectively translating tenement light client into Bitcoin speak. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So if there was an IBC directly from Cosmos, so in some sense, we are a translator, right? So what we are doing is we're in some sense building a bridge to Bitcoin. Yeah. That allows us to get through, get the security through. So we are basically, you can think of as a middle layer for security bridges. We use IBC to talk to other Cosmos chains, but we build our own bridge to Bitcoin to get the security through all the way. Okay, so right, that's that's a non-trivial task. And we should further break down how Tendermint-like clients are so different from Bitcoin's simplified payment verification-like clients. Can you just like go into that and break down the differences and why that's actually a significant technical under, undertaking? So suppose you want to have a light client. So suppose Osmosis wants to communicate directly with Bitcoin, an IBC with Bitcoin. Then an IBC typically involves the receiving chain maintaining a light client or the sender chain. First of all, that's really expensive for Bitcoin. You will do it directly because the signatures, if there are 100 validators, there are 100 signatures on the block. So that's a really expensive uh, light client that needs to be maintained at Bitcoin. So in some sense, our technology is to use a, a cryptographic tool called aggregate signature to reduce that 100 signatures to the size of one signature. Okay, so that's that's one thing. Okay. I mean, when you mention aggregate signatures, that tells me, I mean, I just automatically think BLS and... Yes, it's BLS. That's right. We use BLS. Right. So I do want to zoom out into the greater application for proof-of-stake use cases beyond just tenement BFT. Is the idea that this could be used as a checkpointing system for any proof-of-stake chain, including, but not limited to, Avalanche, Ethereum, Solana, etc.? Yes. So our technology can be used for any proof-of-stake chains. In the case of Cosmos, we are helped with the IBC support. The IBC support helps us to distribute this Bitcoin security in a very easy way to the other chains. For the other outside the Cosmos ecosystem, then there are several ways of doing this. So for example, we are collaborating with Composable. So Composable Composable builds IBC, Composable Finance. They build IBC from Cosmos to other ecosystems such as Polkadot, Near, etc. So we're collaborating with them to enable them to combine their IBC technology with Babylon to deliver also Bitcoin security to these other ecosystems. That collaboration is on the early stage because they are themselves building their test net, but we are starting to work with them on that. And if you'd like to get a primer on Composable Finance, I've done an interview with them uh, in the past last year as well. So you could check it out in the links in yeah, the description. Okay. Is this with Brainjar? This is or? with Brainjar, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. So they were one of the teams that were at the bleeding edge of exporting IBC functionality to different incompatible chains, so to speak. I mean, I completely agree with you that um, Bitcoin is the most secure chain. And now that Ethereum has moved to proof of stake, it's almost one of the only most secure proof of work chains. So the idea of converting Bitcoin into a de facto settlement layer for budget Cosmos chains, 
um, where they're all each their own bespoke settlement chain is an interesting idea. Yeah, I don't know if I want to use the word sedimently. I did notice that that was the title of the uh, podcast. Because to me, settlement layer would involve the Bitcoin asset, the Bitcoin asset, right? The Bitcoin token. Here, we are just using it as a security layer. So in my mind, we're using Bitcoin as the security layer as opposed to the settlement layer. So just sort okay, of yeah, fair put enough. it out there. <laughs> yeah, fair. Fair enough. Is there a distinction? I mean, I know there's a distinction, but can you enumerate the distinction um, between Babylon and something like Rootstock or Stacks? Yeah. So Stacks, in fact, I just had a discussion with the founder of Stacks. We were in the same panel at a Princeton event uh, a that month Muneeb? ago. Yep, Muneeb. So Stacks is a chain that also checkpoints, but they have a very special way of checkpointing. Very different technology. Checkpoint onto Bitcoin to get security from Bitcoin, but they don't distribute the security to other chains. So they are running their own chain with their own application. So it's like an app chain on to Bitcoin. Our entire focus is really to not to run our own app chain, but really our app, if you may think our app is security, is Bitcoin security. And so therefore we spend a lot of time in trying to understand how do we sort of distribute this security to other chains and what use cases can be made out of this Bitcoin timestamping service. So I would say, although there's some similarity in the sense that we most of use Bitcoin for security, the use cases and the scenario is very different. But we, we, we had a good chat with him and he was quite excited about our project. And uh, in fact, in the panel, he was very nice. He started shilling our project for us. So that was... Uh, <laughs> nice. You always want others to show for you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. How's the conversation with the Ethereum Foundation? I imagine you're shilling this to uh, Vitalik to say that, hey, this is going to solve a lot, of your, a lot of your problems. I know that Ethereum has run into some reorgs in prod already, so they, they, they already feel the heat of using that longest train model. Yeah, so right now, Ethereum has an unbonding period of infinity. Nobody can unborn at this point. Right, because they haven't allowed uh, like bi-directional. Yeah, they haven't allowed unborning right now. Yeah. So they haven't allowed unborning yet. yet. This long-range attack issue hasn't arisen yet. Now, eventually, I guess they will have to allow people to unborn. Don't know when that will happen. But when that happens, I think they will run into a similar issue as Cosmos of having to allow a very long and bonding time to make sure there is security against long-range attack. I have described the protocol that we designed with Vitalik, and he's very happy with the protocol. However, there seems to be some ideological issue about using Bitcoin to complement the security of proof-of-stake Ethereum. Yeah. There seems to be some ideological opposition, at least I, I must say I've not like extensively talked to like many people in the Ethereum community, but the few people I talked to, I did get some sense of not a technical concern, but a sort of like, okay, what happens if Bitcoin becomes like, you know, Ethereum will become the number one chain and Bitcoin will become the number seven chain, then why do we need the security from a number seven chain when we're a number one chain already? <laughs> so that was that. Sure. What about the idea of Ethereum leveraging Proof of work security in its ETH PAL chain. 
I mean, that's probably an easier sell for them. I thought Vitalik would like to see Heath Paw disappear altogether. Yeah, <laughs> but but if Heath Paw is is you know breaking, <laughs> what what? And you don't want to use Bitcoin. What do you use? Oh, you were saying that ETH proof of stake should checkpoint onto ETH proof of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's even the harder sell, I think. That. <laughs> okay. Yeah, got it. I must say, we find the Cosmos ecosystem much more receptive of this idea of using Bitcoin security to complement the sovereignty of each individual mm-hmm. chain. It's a good match. I think it's a good yeah, match. Yeah, we're all covert Bitcoin maxis. Yeah. That was a, one of the surprising discovery I had as we entered a Cosmos ecosystem. Yeah. We have not been in this ecosystem very long, but we did discover quite a lot of re- good reception for Bitcoin security. It's because, I mean, a, a lot of the people who worked on Cosmos started in Bitcoin and are ideologically aligned with the libertarian approach that Bitcoin basically um, catalyzed. And Ethereum did too. You know, all of us were birthed from that same birthplace, I guess. And it's just that, you know, Bitcoin maxi community exiled Ethereum and the Ethereum community, but they didn't do it to Cosmos, you know, because Cosmos came um, after their time. So after like the, uh, the altcoin wars. So I think it has to do with that. I see. So it's a different talking time. I see. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Bitcoin Maxi <laughs> community hasn't had time to just crap all over Cosmos, whereas it really, really did on Ethereum. So that's why they really don't like Bitcoin. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because, you know, I came into blockchain after all these wars, so I'm not really privy to the, the excitement and the drama. Yeah. Oh, they got so ugly. But it's a good thing that you just, you know, you see the spoils of war now. <laughs> so you spoke about your test net. Let's talk about when that is, are you trying to get activation from the community and people to stress test the testnet? Is there going to be some kind of incentivized testnet? When's mainnet launch? Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so the initial testnet that we're launching in four weeks is not incentivized. We will turn it into an incentivized testnet later on. Right now, we are uh, integrating with eight chains, five to eight chains we're working with. Which chains? On phase one of the integration. So the chains that we are integrating on the test net right now is the Osmosis, Juno, Akash, Secret, Injective. And as I mentioned, we're working with Composable. So Composable is launching the test net in the next week, I think. And um, Penumbra, we're also working with. Penumbra have their own IBC, so that takes a little bit more work. And uh, Say, we just had a partnership announcement with Say. So this is what we're working with on the test net. Uh, in terms of the longer term, on the main net, we are also working on a governance proposal. So we are preparing a governance proposal actually for osmosis right now. So we are communicating a lot with the community, with the validators on a governance proposal, working with them on the integration. So we have multiple phases of integration. We want a commitment from the community that, hey, let's go towards a good direction. That's what we're working on right now in terms of governance proposal. Okay, great. And how many validators are you expecting to fill your initial validator set at Genesis? You don't want testnet, right? Uh, well, I mean, what you expect in mainnet. Oh, mainnet is too far ahead. Oh, okay. We have not figured out the number of validators on mainnet yet. But right now, we are contacting about 10 validators on the testnet. 
Do you have a rough idea about when mainnet is going to launch? At this moment, we are thinking about uh, sort of two possibilities in terms of the evolution of the project. In one possibility, we will launch a second testnet after the first one with a smart contract on Babylon. So right now, Babylon has no smart contract. And the uh, utility of Babylon is through IBC. So IBC timestamping or checkpointing or the Babylon is our main way of interaction with the, uh, the, uh, the applications. Smart contract would be another possibility. So if we do a smart contract, then we want to do that test second in the summer. And then the mainnet launch will be later of the year, the end near Q4. If we do not do the second test, then we go straight to mainnet. We main that ready in the summer. Now, of course, launching a network is not only the technology or the security is good, also the market condition dependent. So we will check out the situation in the summer. Hopefully, it's better than now. <laughs> yeah, sure. Anything is better than now. Is there anything that you want to inform the audience? Um, how can they follow you? What sort of links do you want them to check out? What's the uh, call to action here? Yeah, so the call to action is uh, our main community is now on Twitter, as I mentioned earlier. So the Twitter, if you guys want to follow us, We'll give a lot of updates in the next few weeks in terms of partnerships, in terms of our testnet plans, etc. Please follow us on Twitter, which is uh, Babylon underscore chain. So that's our Twitter handle. We are also building our Discord channel, but that's kind of an early stage right now. So I will, we will announce it on the Twitter. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on Interchain FM, David. It's been a pleasure. I was actually quite skeptical about this application. But now that you've explained it a little bit further, I actually do think that there is a value add to the overall ecosystem as a core piece of blockchain infrastructure. So thank you for coming on. We are, we are really infrastructure builders. And so we're really hoping to be able to contribute a core piece to the Cosmos ecosystem, which is sort of one of the best, I think, infrastructure in the whole blockchain ecosystem. So it will be really a pleasure for us to be able to contribute so that smart contracting um, layer, is that going to be Cosmosm or something else? Yeah, it'll be likely to be Cosmosm. Okay, yeah, very cool. That's an early stage uh, investigation. Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.